0: The Old Testament scripture reading comes from Second Kings chapter 17. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. And walked in the customs of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Now, the New Testament reading from Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation. Of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: This morning, we will take a break from the gospel, our study in the gospel of John. If you're visiting this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here. We've been in study in the gospel of John for the last few months but today as we've already commented is Reformation Sunday to be exact this is the 506th anniversary of the Reformation some of you will remember the 500th anniversary that we recently celebrated in 2017 this morning The title of our message is, what was the Reformation, and why should it matter to me? That's a question that needs to be answered. If you do a shallow search on the Reformation, you will be told that the Reformation began in October of 1517 when Luther published his 95 arguments, his 95 theses, You'll be told that the Reformation ended in 1555 with the Peace of Augsburg. Most reformers and scholars will tell you that the Reformation really began long before 1517, long before Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the doors of the church at Wittenberg. Men like John Huss, John Wycliffe, came along before Luther. And their lives and their preaching were what we would call or should call the preface or the dawn of the Reformation. The Reformation carried on in powerful influence long after the peace of Augsburg, long after 1555. This morning... I want us to look back at the whole. Take a step back. We can read individual histories. Some of you have, or, uh, know so much about the Reformation. You've read in detail Calvin's Institutes. or You've read in detail the writings of Luther. But sometimes we lose what was really happening, what was really going on with the Reformation. And this morning I want to step back. So that when you walk out of here in a few minutes, you will be able to say, this is what the Reformation was all about. This is what was happening. And if you can't do that, come back and see me uh, after the service, and I'll tell you again what was going on. We need to do this at Christ's Covenant Reformed Church. Because the word reformed, coming out of the Reformation, is in our name, Christ Covenant Reformed Church. By our name, we link ourselves with the great work of the Reformation. I can't do any of that, and you know that, and so we begin as we come to the Scriptures every time by bowing and asking the Father to teach us. So let's pray together. Our Father, what a privilege it is to worship with each other. We worship individually during the week, but to be together with so many folks and join in prayers, and join in hymns. And hear in these hymns, in these prayers, hear the laughter of the gospel, the joy of the gospel. Thank you, Father. And we bow before you now as your priests, a congregation of priests. You've assigned us the duty, the responsibility of praying for each other, of coming before you, praying for our families, praying for our children, our parents, our grandchildren, praying for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, praying for the world around us. And this morning, we would pray for John Albritton, Father, as he will have surgery this week, bless that surgery we pray that that surgery will accomplish exactly what it's designed to do we pray there will be no complications that you will use that to take away the pain and heal him we pray for Jan Gwynn Father for the infection that he had we pray that Father the antibiotics will be effective and bring healing to Jan. We pray for Joan Schaefer that you will bring healing to her. For David Mattingly, we thank you for the positive answer to prayer concerning him. We pray that, Father, you would continue to bless, give David many years yet upon this earth. Oh, Father, continue to use him powerfully in your church we pray for Phil Halley again thank you for the healing you brought to him after the recent seizures we pray that you bless Sally as she cares for him give her grace Father we thank you for the joy that she shows forth even now we pray for Jana Kearney and Gene Thomas in their grief and death of their father. Oh, Father, wipe away their tears. Wipe away their tears with your omnipotent comfort. We pray for Francis Montgomery and Mary Forsdick as they grieve concerning the death of their father. We thank you. We thank you that at such times as these, When death comes to us, we can say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Our Father, we thank you. And now as we turn to your word, We know that John Sartell cannot teach us so that it will make any difference in our lives. And so, once more this morning, we turn to you and say, Father, teach us. Tell us the story one more time. Expand the story. Open our eyes to see the glory of the Son of God and Son of Man. Change us, Father. Maybe some of us for the first time. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. What was the Reformation? And why should it matter to us? This morning, I want to begin by drawing a biblical mental picture for us first I want us to see in this picture covers the whole picture a turbulent ocean not still not calm ocean turbulent all kinds of things as we look closely at this scene all kinds of things are happening the wind is blowing it's not a hurricane but it is a constant wind that can be felt. The sea is rising and falling as white caps roll across the surface. Just underneath the surface, strong currents carry water along in wide rivers, flowing in different directions. There's movement everywhere. Now, why did I say a mental picture that is biblical. Many times in Scripture, Old and New Testament, the history of mankind, the history of the nations, is compared to just such an ocean, just such a scene. All the civil strifes inside of nations... All the wars between nations are symbolized, sometimes in Scripture, by a turbulent sea. Moving and being moved in different directions. We saw this in our study in Revelation. At the end of chapter 12, in the beginning of chapter 13, let's look at it. Here, he looks at the people and looks at the history of the world and... It's a picture of turbulence, like a turbulent sea. Look at it. Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious. Now the dragon is Satan, of course. Became furious with the woman. That's the church. That's us. And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood... On the stands of the sea. Satan stood. That's a strange picture. He stood there looking at the sea. And the very next verse, Revelation 13, 1 reads, the apostle John says, I saw a beast. And this is what Satan saw. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads and 10 crowns on his horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Satan is pictured as standing on the seashore, looking at the sea. He's looking at an undulating, ever-changing sea of nations. He's looking over a domain that he considers to be his own domain, his own kingdom. As the dragon watches, an extraordinary beast rises out of the sea. What's that mean? That is, he rises out of the disruptive, chaotic, cataclysmic, and rebellious history of the nations of the world. Now that is how the arrival of the ultimate Antichrist is described in God's word. Coming out of the sea. And that sea stands for the nations, the turbulent nations. Now, hold this sight of this turbulent sea. Hold it in your mind, this turbulent sea symbolizing the history of the nations, and we will return to it near the end of the message. But hold it now. Our scripture this morning, our scriptures, two scriptures, one from 2 Kings 17, one from the first chapter of Galatians, they have, both passages have a common theme. Both scriptures are addressing the church, not the world, but the church. The scripture from 2 Kings 17 was addressing the Old Testament church, of course. The scripture from Galatians in first chapter was addressing the New Testament church. Both passages have this common theme. In both passages, God was speaking to his people, not the world, to his people who had strayed, who had wandered off. From his word. And that brings us to our first point: the proclivity of the people of God to wander from God's word and God's gospel of salvation. Look at second Kings seventeen, verses seven and eight. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt and under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And they feared other gods, worshiped other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations. Then look at Galatians 1 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, in 2 Kings 17, we read these exact words the people of Israel had sinned against their God. This was not talking about a nation in which the church dwelled. The people of Israel, the people of Jacob, were the people of God. The church of the Old Testament. This is, we read it's their God. They had sinned against their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To whom was Paul speaking in Galatians 1? The church in Galatia. They were the followers of Christ in his gospel. Notice that Paul was not, listen to this, Paul was not astounded that they had wandered away. He was astounded that it happened so quickly. Look at the words. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. People, this is not a strange thing. It's not a rare thing. Sometimes we look at churches and we look at The church as a whole or individual church, and they've gotten away from the gospel. And we're just astounded. We shouldn't be. It's not a strange thing or a rare thing for the people of God to go astray. Read the history of the church in the Old Testament and New Testament, and we see the church going astray in every age. Think about it. In the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah, they were two prophets called of God to preach to the church of the Old Testament. In a time of great judgment, God was judging that church severely. They had strayed from His word. Remember when Jesus addressed the churches of Asia in. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, there were seven churches of Asia. And the book of Revelation is written to those seven churches. And as he describes the churches, he speaks speaks to the seven churches. Jesus speaks to the seven churches personally. And he warned five out of the seven churches that they had wandered away from where they ought to be. Our, Our point is... The proclivity of the people of God to wander from God's Word and God's gospel. The old Southern Presbyterian Church goes by the acronym the PCUS, the Presbyterian Church in the United States, was once, when it was formed in the 19th century, it was a strong and recognized worldwide as a strong reformed denomination. Solid theologically. Less than 100 years after her birth, by the 1960s, she was ordaining men to the ministry who did not believe in the deity of Christ. That happened in just 100 years. They thought salvation through the blood of Christ, these men thought it was passé. Now, I was a part of this. I was educated in their seminaries. I sat personally in a presbytery, gathered in a large crowd like this of ministers and ruling elders, where ministers would be examined and approved, and they would deny the deity of Christ, deny the reality of heaven, deny the reality of hell. And we were ordaining them and sending them out to preach the gospel in churches in Virginia. You read scripture and you understand from our scripture this morning. That's not a strange thing. It has plagued the entire history of the church. The proclivity of the people of God to wander from God's word and God's gospel. Secondly, I want you to look at this passage and see the church ministers in the midst of a world that is constantly striving To change God's word and change the gospel. Look at 2 Kings 17 again, 7 and 8. And they worshiped other gods and did what? And followed the practices. There were nations around them and the nations that had actually inhabited the land that they went and conquered. They saw their customs, they saw their gods, they saw the way they lived. They followed it. Look at Galatians 1, 6 and 7. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you. People had come in from outside, from around the church, from different traditions. And they had, wandered away so why is there a proclivity to stray in our history you've got to ask that if we look back and we say well if there is a proclivity for the church to wander why does that happen in every age well if we read this passage we understand that they were following the church was listening to the world Around it. And the powerful secular, ungodly testimony of the world was having an effect on the church. Now we can understand this. What happens when you, as a Christian, go to the university, go to the fraternity or sorority, go to the secular university? The universities today are cathedrals for the secular world, for the secular faith. Or what what happens when you go into that? Or what happens when you go into your workplace that is totally secular in our day? What happens? There's pressure, isn't there? There's pressure. There's a draw to that. How many of us, I know so many college students had said to me over the years, John, what am I going to do? What am I going to do when I go to college? How am I going to be able to be faithful? They were saying there's a pressure there. The Galatian church adopted a different gospel than they had heard from Paul. The death, they concluded, the death and resurrection of Jesus was not enough to save. Something needed to be added to it. And so they added to the gospel. Christ alone was not enough. Grace alone was not enough. Faith alone was not enough. They were moving toward a man-centered, something they could do, salvation. Think about this. God had sent his son to take our sin, to take our guilt. To take our punishment. This great, awesome in, incarnation had taken place. God came in the flesh, He took our sins, our guilt, and our punishment. It was all proven effective through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here comes folks from the outside saying, No, You must be circumcised. No, you must keep certain traditions if you're to be saved. Just think they were looking at the Father in John 3.16 where God says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And they were standing there and saying, God, that's not enough. Jesus dying on the cross. I was talking about this with somebody this morning dying said it's finished it's paid and here are people in Galatia saying Jesus that's not enough standing at the foot of the cross that's not enough that's why Paul was so angry that's why he was pulling out his hair this was an insult to the father It was an insult to Christ What's the point? The church can be powerfully affected by the world around it. In our present culture in this country, let me ask you a question. Right now today, in this country, is the church changing the secular world Or is the secular world changing the church? Which is it? Jesus has called us. He's called us individually. He's called us as families. He's called us as a church to be salt and light out in the world where we live. You're called to that individually. We're called to that as families. We're called to that as a church. There have been times in world history when the message of God's gospel when the church and God's word have powerfully affected the culture of the world there was a time that that was true in this country there's never been a time when the majority of the people in this country have been a Christian there has been a time when the Judeo-Christian ethic had a huge impact on every part of our culture however today and you know this, I don't have to tell you, the church has been marginalized. It's been pushed to the perimeter. It's been pushed to a place of absolute irrelevance. Every major institution in our culture is saturated with secular thought from the university to Wall Street, from ESPN to the arts. We've never experienced, I've never experienced, you've never experienced a more powerful and seductive secular culture in our lifetime. So I ask you, is the church changing the culture or is the culture changing the church? I think the answer is self-evident. We're hearing debates now inside the church concerning how we should relate to the secular world. Big debate, talking about missions in our mission to the world. How do we relate to the world? We're hearing that we must change our thinking. Church has got to change its thinking about such things as abortion. We must change our thinking about, and our vocabulary, about homosexuality. Now you say, oh, John, we've been hearing that for a long time from the world yes we have but I'm not talking about hearing it from the world right now I'm talking about that we hear it debated inside the church courts inside the church we must change our thinking about the definition of marriage we change our thinking about the definition of gender And it's an effort to make Jesus and his gospel palpable to our secular city. The church has got to fit in and be relevant. And that's the way we can be relevant. The proclivity of the people of God to wander from God's word and God's gospel. The church ministers in the midst of a world that is constantly striving to change God's word and God's gospel. And you say, okay. Hadn't heard about the Reformation yet. <laughs> what, does this, what does this have to do with the Reformation? Well, we will see in Galatians and in Second Kings 17, we will also see the gracious call of God. For his wandering people to return to his word and to his gospel. The gracious call of God for wandering people to his wandering people to the church to return to his word and the gospel. When the church of Israel was infected by the culture around her, she was actually beginning to worship the gods of the nations around her. And what did God say? What did God say? God sent them a message. Look at it. It's in verse 13, 2 Kings 17. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet, not just some prophets, every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil way and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. What was he saying? He was saying simply this. Get back to my word. Get back to my commandments. Get back to my statutes. Get back to the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that occurs in the temple of God. I love the verse that we read this morning from Jeremiah 6.16. We read it and are called to worship. Open your bulletin and look at it and memorize it. I hope you will memorize it this afternoon. It's one of my favorite verses. This is what the Lord says. And he says this. Now keep in mind, this is Jeremiah. He says this to the church that is being judged, powerfully judged by God. And this is the message that God gave Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads. And look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. He was saying, stand at the crossroads. Stand at the crossroads between the way of the world and the way of God. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask for the word of God. Ask for the Ten Commandments. Ask for the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Ask for the messages about the coming Messiah. Walk in those ancient paths. And there you'll find rest for your souls. You won't find judgment in those paths. Notice he's speaking to the church. Her ministers, her elders, her members. He was not speaking to those outside the church. This is not written to non-Christians. It's not written to those outside the church in the Old Testament. Listen to 1 Peter 4, 17. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. He's not addressing, Peter, it's not addressing the world. It's not addressing the pagan world. It's addressing the church. It's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, the household of God, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Get back to my word. What did God say to the church of Galatia through Paul? There's this debate that goes on, Galatians, as Paul explains what he's talking about, how they've wandered from the gospel. And he gets near the end in the fifth chapter, gets all the way over in the fifth chapter, And this is what God says to the wayward church at Galatia. Look at Galatians 5.16. Most of you know this passage very well. But I say, walk by the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. He says, you want to do right? Walk by the Holy Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires, notice the conflict here. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now skip down to verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you. Do you really understand? He's talking to the church. He's not talking. We always, when we read that, we think about about Sodom and Gomorrah. We think about Las Vegas. We think about awful, ungodly, the awful, ungodly world that's around us.
0: He's saying this to the church.
1: Those who do such things, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no law. What's he talking about? he's talking about holiness. That is holiness. You know what holiness is? Holiness is that supernatural love that dwells in his people, that supernatural joy, that supernatural peace, and patience, kindness, and goodness. Holiness. Paul is saying there's a way of the world and the way of the flesh. the way of sin walk in it and you'll miss the kingdom of God you will perish then there's the way of the Holy Spirit and who is the Holy Spirit he's the author of scripture he's the author of scripture he's the author of God's word so in this he's saying get back to the Holy Spirit walk in the Spirit he's saying get back to the word get back to walking living out the word He says, get back to Calvary. He closes that by looking at verse 24. He says, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its desires. Get back to Calvary. Now notice, he says the same thing to the Galatian church that he says to the church in 2 Kings 17. The exact same thing. It's what he says. He did not say, you must go out and negotiate with the world. He did not say, you must go out and make my word palpable to the secular world so they'll come to church. That's not what he said. He focused on things said, get back to my word. Get back to the gospel. You know, that's what God was doing in the time we call the Reformation. By all accounts, the church in the Dark Ages and in the Middle Ages was corrupt in her teaching, in her doctrine, and in her conduct. The church had wandered far from God, from God's Word, and from God's Gospel. In a 200-year period from the 14th century to the 16th century, from the 14th century to the 1300s, through the 16th century, the 1500s, God raised up five remarkable men. Now, there were a lot more than that, I know, that were stars, heroes in the Reformation. But I just chose these five men. Five remarkable men, ministers, scholars, theologians. There was John Wycliffe, 1328 to 1384. He lived in Oxford, England. He worked in translating the New Testament into the language of the people to bring God's word to the people in their common language. Then there was John Huss. He lived from 1370 to 1415. By the way, there's going to be a test on these dates next week. Uh, From 1370 to 1415, he was in Bohemia, Now it's called the Czech Republic. He lived in Prague. The University of Prague was where he ministered. In 1415, he was burned at the stake for his faith, pointing the church back to Scripture. Then there was Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546. Then there was John Calvin, 1509 to 1564. Then there was John Knox from 1514 to 1572. All these men powerfully brought the gospel and brought God's word to the church. Not not just to their culture, to the church. And the church affected the cultures around it in a way That was felt for the next 400 years. Notice he did not raise them from the same city or in the same country. They were all from different cities, different countries. They were calling the church to repentance. All of them. And their first words were, so from Wycliffe on down, sola scriptura, back to the scriptures. The different confessions that they authored, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, where do they start? They thought they start with the Bible being God's Word. It's not church tradition as an authority. It's not church hierarchy. That's the authority. Only one authority, and that is God's Word. Sola Scriptura was the battle cry. And then Sola Fide by faith alone. Sola Gratia by grace alone. Sola Christo by Christ alone. Sola Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone. They were speaking of constance. Of absolutes. Now listen. This is crucial. They were speaking of constants. You know when something is constant. It can't be moved. It's there. You can't destroy it. You can't get rid of it. It's absolute. Well, That's what they were speaking about. They were speaking about the absolutes. The constancy of God's word. The absolutes of God's gospel. That do not and cannot be changed. Now. Go back to the scene where we began. The turbulent ocean, driven by the wind, rising and falling of waves, the currents beneath the surface carrying rivers of waters in different directions. That's how the Bible looks at the history of the nations of the world. People, that's where we live, in the midst of that ocean, in the midst of that sea. That's where the church lives. That's where the church ministers. With the forces of this world striving against God and his word constantly. Constantly trying to change the purpose and message of the church of Jesus Christ. From ancient times, mariners, sailors, were guided across the seas by two constants. The sun during the day and the North Star at night. When clouds covered the sun and clouds covered the North Star, sailors lost their way on the sea. The name of the North Star is Polaris. When they could see the sun, when they could see Polaris, they could stay on course. They could navigate the rough seas pulling in different directions. In the same way, The church navigates through the roughest of seas in the world by keeping their focus on the constants, on the absolutes of God's word. The constants, the absolutes of God's gospel. This is our Polaris. Scripture alone is our Polaris. Salvation through Christ alone is our Polaris. Through faith alone is our Polaris. By Grace alone, that's our Polaris. Our sun and our North Star. That is what Huss and Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin and Knox. That's what they were doing in the Reformation. They were saying there's a North Star, people. Follow it. There's our Polaris. You know there's been many reformations calling the church back to her foundations. These are constants that are the only way we as Christ's covenant reform church, it's the only way we'll navigate the rough seas in our present godless culture. Amen.